Well, I've entitled this morning's message, The Potter and His Clay. And this is, as you guys are well aware, now that we are, what, 18 weeks into this, that we are still moving our way through the... How are you guys enjoying it so far? Are you guys getting something good out of it? You've been blessed? I know that there's parts in the books of Roman where it's, 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 it's a good message to preach, and we talk about the gospel, and we talk about what God's doing, and, and it's exciting. And then there's weeks like last week, and maybe even a little bit this week, where we're starting to get into some history. We're starting to learn some more stuff, and, and it becomes more of a teaching moment. And that's kind of what we're going to continue on into that today is, is, is buckle up because there's some good stuff coming. But you're going to want to take notes because this is the kind of stuff that you get up in the morning, and you read it, and you're like, what the heck is Paul talking about? This, I, don't, I can't even follow it. So that's what we're doing today is we're going through it verse by verse so that way that we have an understanding of what Paul's talking about. We have an understanding of what the Word of God is trying to, to minister to us. Because sometimes we read it and, and one, we just make it way more complicated than it really needs to be. Sometimes we have a little bit of struggle understanding what they're trying to say. And, and that's what I love about going through the books of the Bible like this. Is because how many of you know that it's real easy if you're trying to share a message? If I want to teach something and I want to teach a topic, it's real easy for me to go through and go, I'll use this one. This one will be hard to explain. I'm not going to use this verse. But I'm going to use this one. But when we're going through the books of the Bible, verse after verse, you know, I don't get to skip over the hard ones. We've got to go through them, and we've got to learn, and we come out with a better understanding of God's Word because the reality is, is that uh, Christianity and God's Word is, is, is not like progressive insurance. We don't get to pick the parts we want and put the others back on the shelf. We've got to take all of it, amen? So last week, we ended uh, the discussion with the argument that Paul was making, and, and like I was saying, is that uh, Christianity and it was, is not a... a, a and the idea of God choosing is an election is not one of exclusion, but one of inclusion. And that was the point that Paul was trying to make. And today we're really going to dive more and dig into the, to the heart of that matter. And one thing that I wanted to really reiterate, because there are, are certain people that think that there's a certain elect group of people that God loves and they're going to make it into heaven. And if you're not in that group, you, don't just, you just don't get to go to heaven. That's all there is to it. And uh, that's a decision God has made and... I don't subscribe to that. I don't see it in the scripture. And, and we're going to actually walk through, we walked through some last week and this week, some more of those scriptures that people will use to argue that know that there's a certain people that God has elected and some that he has not. But I want to encourage you and really reiterate that there are not a subset of people that can be saved. But rather, the whole point of, uh, of this chapter and the coming ones is to, is to point out that that. Everybody is included. That is God's choice of who to include. The whole point was to, was Paul was trying to make a point to the Jews that God has always made a choice and he wants to include the Gentiles and every, which is everyone that's not a Jew, right? The Jews were God's chosen people. Everybody else is a Gentile. That leads to most of us in this room. But the Jews had a problem because the Jews thought that God only loved them, only had something for them. But God's saying, no, I want to include the Gentiles. And they're saying, God, you can't do that. You've already picked us. So Paul's trying to really reiterate, why, who, do you, who are you to tell God what he can choose, what he can, what he can do? And if he wants to include all of creation, that is up to him. The point was is that Paul was arguing that God could include anybody he wanted, not that he would exclude certain people. But the idea that salvation would be offered to anyone other than the Jews, it, it offended them. 
Anybody ever been offended in here? That's one of the things that, that uh, I always have to remind myself to be careful when I'm reading the scripture because I'll look at them and I'm like, those idiots, why would they do that? And then God's like, well, just yesterday, you did this. And I'm like, so? Why you got to do that, God? Does God ever point that out? Is, am I the only one that that happens to? But the idea that, that salvation would be offered to anybody other than the Jews, it offended them. It upset them because they were God's chosen people. Why was God looking elsewhere? What happened is is that the Jews ended up choosing to reject God. And because of that, God offered salvation to all of us. And like I said, it's not like there was a subset through the Scriptures. One of the things we have to use the Scriptures to interpret the Scriptures. So when you see something that says that there was, there was an elect, there was somebody predestined, and we're trying to figure out what that means, we have to look at other scriptures to kind of help us see where that's going. And I want to think just a subset, there's only an elect few. I go to other scriptures and stuff like this, John 3.16. We all know this one, right? This is one of my favorite verses, the first verse I ever memorized. And for some reason in today's world, it's become kind of, a, a, people have become jaded with it. Like for some reason, if you know this scripture, it doesn't mean, it's so common, it doesn't have any weight. But the truth is, this is a fantastic scripture. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever would believe in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. It says whoever. It doesn't say just the ones God had chosen. It says whoever would believe in Him. Second Peter 3.9, we, we looked at this one last week. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach Repentance. Titus 2.11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. You're going to see that theme all throughout the scriptures that salvation is for all, for everyone, not just a subset of people. So when we get to these points and we're reading, it goes like, this really seems like it's just pointing to a certain subset of people. If we look at the other scripture, we have to come to one, we have two conclusions we can come to. God screwed up or we're misunderstanding something. Now, my weight, my bet, is on that we're misunderstanding something. Because God's not going to screw up. God knows what His Word is. But like we said, there was a real struggle right now because this is, this is really a real change for the Jewish people. And it's easy for us to go, man, why don't they just get over it? But you have to understand that... that this was their entire life. This was everything that they believed. They're, they're, this is something that was contrary to everything that ever been taught, everything they'd ever learned. And they had a problem with God bringing the rest of the sheep into the fold. But the reality is, is that's actually why Jesus was sent. John 10, 6, it says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. That's why Jesus actually came, was to bring everybody in to the fold. So Paul is going to begin to refute this idea that, one, the Jewish people are the only ones that can be saved, or really what he's struggling with is the Jewish people choose who God will save and who will not. Because they were taking it upon themselves, saying, no, salvation is just for the Jews, it's not for anybody else. And this is how Paul begins this argument dealing with that. In verse 19, Romans 9, 19, it says, You will say to me, then why does he still find fault for who can resist his will. So we've got to remember last week where we ended up. 
Verse 918, it says, So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now this raises an important question. If it is God who has mercy or who hardens, who can resist his will? Now, these are legitimate questions. This is stuff that people should be asking. Now, we do have to look at the Scripture and and try to find the answer to these things. But if you read that, if you just read that verse, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills, that makes it seem like God is taking over everybody's free will. And he says, if if I want you to be uh, have mercy, I'll give you mercy. But if I want to harden your heart, then I'm going to do that. And the truth is, if that's what that Scripture means, if that's what it means literally, Who can resist his will? If God comes down and says, your heart's going to be hardened, who's going to say otherwise? He's God. He's all-powerful. And the argument that is being made is that if he decides that you will be hardened, then you will be hardened. And if that is true, here's where we run into a little bit of a, a tricky dilemma. If that is true, how can he find fault? That's, you know, we, we look at that in the legal system today, and we would call that entrapment. You know, if, if, if a police officer gets out of his car, pulls you over, and says, I need you to drive 100 miles an hour, and you don't have a choice, he makes you drive 100, but then he pulls you over and gives you a ticket, that's called entrapment. It's like, how can you hold me at fault? You just told me to do that. And that's what they're arguing here. Wait a minute. If, if, he, if, if he hardens who he hardens, and he makes my heart harden, and I reject him, then how can he hold me at fault for that? It just doesn't seem fair. And the truth is, I think we've essentially all asked this question on so many occasions. We begin to question why God is doing what he's doing, and we begin to think that God isn't fair. We wonder, why do innocent and downtrodden people get hurt while the rich and powerful seem to get away with everything? Anybody ever wondered why those things happen. We're going to get into it a little bit deeper in a little while and talk about that a little more in depth, but the truth is is that as we're going through this, we have to understand some things. One, God by nature is perfectly just. For those of you who have been here for a while, you've heard me say that that being just is a characteristic of God. If God isn't just, He's no longer God. And this is what it said in Genesis 18.25, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. You shall not, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just. Now if you remember this story, this is when Moses is asking God to spare Sodom. God tells Moses, I'm going to go ahead and, and destroy Sodom. Oh, sorry, Abraham. I even have Abraham written down here. Sorry. We're going to be talking about Moses later, so I'm, my, my head is all mixed up here. Praise God. But he asked, Abraham asked him to spare Sodom for the 50. He says, if there's 50 righteous people, God, you're a God who is just. Won't you save him? God says, yes, I'll save him for 50. And then he goes, okay, God, well, what about if there's 45 righteous people? And God goes, okay, I'll save him for the 45. And then he says, okay, God, what if there's just 40 righteous people and god says if there's 40 righteous people i'll save them and he says okay god i know you said 40 but what about if there's just 20 righteous people and god goes okay if there's just 20 i'll go ahead and save them and he says well i don't want to bother you again god but what if there are just 10 righteous people and god says yes every time 
If there are righteous people there, I will save them for this. God is a just God. But at times, it, it seems like he, he does that very thing. He, he does, seems like he's not being just. It seems like he is uh, somehow favoring the rich and poor with people that are hurting and broken. If we look at it from an outside perspective, sometimes it can feel like, God, why are these people being treated? We look and we wonder, why is it that, that, that babies are being murdered every single day? a subsidized organization that that's their to murder babies every single day. And then we look at even stories in the Bible. We see that Moses and Pharaoh are standing side by side and he mercy on Moses, but he condemns Pharaoh. And we wonder, is this just? Is that right? Because if you read the story, it says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. We see that he elected Israel and rejected the other nations. And we wonder, is this just? And these are the, the very same questions that I think the, the Jews were having at this point when they begin to, to make these arguments. And, and Paul is going to begin to refute these arguments that they're having as they try to tell God who he can and cannot choose to be part of salvation, who he can and, and cannot choose to be part of his kingdom. And after this, he says, he goes on into verse 20, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? The potter no right over the clay to make out the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. So Paul's first argument is there, as they're saying these things back to him, his first argument is, first off, who are you to argue with God? I love the argument that Paul's making here because of the ridiculousness of it. Because I don't know about you guys, but when I read the scripture, I try to imagine what this would look like in my head. And, and can you imagine that there's a potter and he's got his wheel spinning and he's getting ready to make a wash basin. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the, the basin turns around and hey, hey, what are you doing? I wanted to be fine china. I didn't want to be a toilet. What are you thinking? But can you imagine, this is the picture I have in, Maybe you guys aren't like me and you don't think about this stuff, but I, I, I got cartoons going on in my head as this thing is talking to the, to the, to the potter. I'm, I'm, I don't know, it's, it's looking like a, Pixar is up in this place messing around with stuff. But the reality is, is that if, if I create something, I get to decide what it's used for. The, the clay on the wheel doesn't get to pick what it's being made for. If, if, the, if, the, the, if he wants to make one for, for honorable use or dishonorable use, what he's saying is if, if I want to make a pot that's going to be used for cleaning people's feet or if I want to use, create a pot that's going to be used for, for uh, being used in the temple, the creator gets to choose what those things are being used for. The creator gets to choose how something is used. It's completely in his hands. And none of us would think anything other than that. We would all think it was crazy. We would all think we'd lose our mind if the pot gets up and starts talking to the, to the, to the, to the potter. I think it was uh, Francis Chan that said this. He said, If God said in his word that all Asian people must stand on their head, then he would do it. He says, They may not like it. They may not agree with it. But he would do it because God is God. And if that's what God says is right, then he would do it. Now, thank God, that's not what God said. And I look through the Bible and I, I, I see these other, this happens in other times. You guys, 
Remember when Job came uh, and, and God came and spoke to Job? Man, I read that and I'm just like, I'm like cowering in fear for Job when I read that story because Job begins to question God. And, and this is what and the whole, all of verse 30 or chapter 38 is just God like giving it to, to Job. But this is how it starts in Job 38, 1 through 7. Then the Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. Could you imagine if God said that to you? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Were you there when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? And who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. I thought about reading this entire chapter because God just began, basically, where were you when I did all this? And why don't you go ahead and tell me how it works then? You see, I want to be clear, though. The point that Paul is making here is not that some vessels are honorable and some are dishonorable. That's not the point that Paul is trying to make. This is not an argument saying that that only a select group of people, the honorable ones, can get in and the the dishonorable ones cannot. The reality is is the, the, the point that Paul is making is, one, if God wants to do something, who are we to argue with God? And you have to remember the story of this is the Jewish people are saying, no, the Gentiles can't come in. And Paul's saying, if God wants to include the Gentiles, he's God. Who are you to tell him otherwise? You see, in this case, the Jewish people thought that the Gentiles were dishonorable and they were tried that he couldn't use them as honorable ones. But I think it would do well for all of us to remember that God is God and we are not. And we don't get to tell God how he's going to do things. Lord knows I have tried to tell God how he should do things. Come ask me later. I'll tell you how some of that's worked out for me. My advice is to not tell God how to do things. The truth is, one, one of two things can happen. One, you're just going to get frustrated because God's going to do it his way. Or, sometimes God will actually let you do it your way. And you'll make a mess. Sometimes, and I don't, I don't know all the details and when he makes this decision, but sometimes God answers prayers just because we ask him, even if it's not what he wanted to do. The biggest one that I can think of in scriptures is when Israel asked for a king. God says, you shouldn't have a king. And they asked for a king. He says, you shouldn't have a king. And they asked for a king. We want to be like the other nations and have a king. And God says, you don't need a king. There's not supposed to be a king for you. And finally, God says, okay, fine, have a king. And you know what happens? They made a mess because they wanted to do it their way. I would encourage you all to let God do things his way. It'll work out better for you in the end always. So the first argument that Paul makes is one. God is God, and he can do what he wants. Who are you to argue with God? 22. And says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So the next argument that he says, one, like I said, is God is God, he does what he wants. Two, is that everything that God does, he has a purpose for. God's not just making decisions willy-nilly, saying, I wonder if this will work out. We'll give it a shot. That's how we do stuff. That's how God does stuff. I have to ask you this. Have you ever wondered 
why God, at least from our perspective, lets people get away with stuff. Sometimes pretty egregious stuff. We see people getting taken advantage of. We see businesses taking advantage of people. And not only does it seem like these people and businesses taking advantage of people, that not only does it seem like they're not suffering any consequences, but sometimes it seems like they're even being successful. It's like they're being rewarded for being awful, unethical people. Has anybody ever seen that? What about Pharaoh? How long did it take? If I switch the words here now, will it, will it cancel it out? How long did Pharaoh... Did it take for Pharaoh to let Abraham go? See, look, I, I switched their names and now we're, we're back to normal. How long did it take for him to let Moses go? And Moses and his people go, how long, how many times did Moses have to keep going back to Pharaoh? How many opportunities did he have? And we see this stuff happen and we're like, why? I mean, even if you're reading that, like, why did God take so long to get his people out of, out of Egypt? I mean, he could have done it in, in one single swoop. I mean, there's so many other easier ways. What if God would have just made them all invisible? They could have walked away. Nobody would have known anything. What if God would have just made all of the Egyptians just sleep for like a week? They could have just walked on out. This is why God doesn't let me be in charge of things. I can't imagine that would work out very good. But the reality is, is is God is enduring this nonsense. He's not creating it. He's not reveling in it, but he is enduring it so that his power and glory can be made known. That's what he says. What if God, oops, wrong button. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Paul's saying there's a purpose for this. God is being patient. God, I mean, how long did he give, how, how many chances did he give Pharaoh to repent and get with the program? Verse 22 says that he endures with much, much, somebody want to read that for me? He endures with much patience vessels of wrath that were prepared for destruction. One, this doesn't actually mean that God prepared these vessels for destruction. God did not create Pharaoh just so he could free his chosen people from somebody. Actually, people that are smarter than me and studied Greek longer than me and know more than me, they say that that word there uh, should, re- should read, they prepared themselves for destruction. The Greek is in the middle voice. It makes it reflexive. So what he's saying is that those people have actually prepared themselves for destruction. I want you to know that when you disregard God, you ignore God, that's actually what you're doing is preparing yourself for destruction. And if they do it to themselves, is there any injustice for God to let them reap the wrath that they choose? If we choose to prepare ourselves for destruction, are we, isn't it, wouldn't it be kind of odd for us to say, why is this happening to me? I'll tell you what, I've been there a few times in my life. I can't stop eating. And I'm like, why am I gaining all this weight? Why is this happening to me? Didn't study when I was in college and I failed. Why am I failing? God, why am I failing these tests? Maybe if you wouldn't have stayed out so late and you would have studied. I was preparing myself for these issues. As I was studying for this, I, I found this story that I thought was quite fitting, and it says this, it says, have you ever wondered why God, the Creator, allows unbelievers, the created, to speak foolishly about Him? As if He does not exist. God is patient, but one day He will judge His enemies. Robert G. Ingersoll was a famous lecturer who made, great, uh, made a great sport of mocking God, but one day a woman attended his 
speech and was ready to answer his foolishness with a bit of godly wisdom. When the infidel Robert G. Ingersoll was delivering his lectures against Christ in the Bible, his oratorical ability usually assured him of a large crowd. And one night after an inflammatory speech in which he severely attacked man's faith in the Savior, he dramatically took out his watch and said, I'll give God a chance to prove that he exists and is almighty. I challenge him to strike me dead within five minutes. First there was silence, then people became uneasy. Some left the hall, unable to take the nervous strain of the occasion, and one woman fainted. At the end of the allocated time, the atheist exclaimed derisively, See, there is no God. I am still very much alive. And after the lecture, a young fellow said to a Christian lady, Well, Ingersoll certainly proved something tonight, and her reply was memorable. She said, Yes, he did. He demonstrated that even the most defiant sinner cannot exhaust the patience of the Lord in just five minutes. And another man added, as I was coming downtown today, a belligerent little fellow came running out of an alley, daring me to hit him. Do you suppose I actually struck him? Just because he challenged me to do so? In the same way, our Lord will not strike everyone dead who defies him. We should be thankful that in this age he is still operating in grace and desires to show his love rather than his wrath. Remember, God has the right to condemn, but he would rather forgive. The truth is, is that God endures those who are evil, those who will never repent, in order to give all of us a chance to repent. God could end the world now, but he's waiting for the, the vessels of mercy, all of those who believe on him to respond. So God puts up with some stuff. And God's never going to take our free will away. He's not going to make decisions for you. Even when we talked about where it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. I likened it to when I tell my kids to clean their room and they're mad at me. It could be said that I hardened their heart because I told them to do something they didn't want to. But they still make a decision to do what they're going to do. Reality is patient with all of us, enduring all kinds of stupidity. And unfortunately that means we get to endure alongside him many times. But this is why Jesus is not going to return until all the heard the gospel. He's being patient with them. Amen. And he continued on in verse 25. As indeed he says in Hosea, who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not my beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. The third argument that Paul is making. So first is that God is God. He can do what he wants. Second is that whatever God does, there's a purpose for it. And the third argument is, this has always kind of been the plan, guys. This quote, these quotes that Paul making, verse 25 is actually from Hosea 2.23, if you want to look that up. And verse 22, sorry, 26 is from Hosea 1.10, if you want to look that up. I want to say, I don't know who was praying for me. My arm hasn't hurt one bit this entire time up here. So praise God, I think it might be healed. It's actually a huge deal because you, you guys don't realize how much pain I actually was in last week when I was up here. And I don't feel anything right now. Praise God. Sorry, I just got distracted. But God is good and I wanted to give him a hand. These verses that Paul was quoting from were written several hundred years before Jesus came to this earth. It wasn't like Paul's making this up on the spot. This has always been the plan. Those who are not my people, I will call my people. He's referring to the Gentiles. 
says, you are not my people, but they will be called sons of the living God. This is, this is quoted th- uh, several hundred years before uh, Paul is speaking. But the reality is, as I was studying this, I was thinking about this, and it's really easy to see when we have the entire Bible. We have the, the New Testament. We have the Old Testament. They say, the, what is the expression, that hindsight is twenty twenty. It's easy for us to go, how could they not see this? It's so obvious. Except for, I didn't just read the Bible and figure it out. Somebody had to point this stuff out to me as well. But uh, I can't really fault the Jews for missing this at all. Because the truth is, is that even with the Bible, even with the Old Testament and the New Testament, even with all of this, even with people teaching me, there's still been times when I've questioned what the heck is going on here. I've pondered it myself and I wonder, why did God wait for the Jews to reject him before we were allowed in? I thought, were we just an afterthought? Were we, were we just plan B? And I've wondered these things, you know, because there's a moment because you're like, on one hand, you, you, you feel like that's, that's pretty harsh, God. You know, you're thinking, what, are we basically just your rebound because the Jews messed up? But then on the other hand, I'm like, shut up, Wayne, this is a pretty good deal. Just take it. <laughs> but the more I study Scripture, the more I realize that we were never plan B. We were plan A all along. The Jews and the Gentiles alike, the the plan was always for, this has been set in motion from the beginning. In verse 27, as he continues on, he says, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant. A remnant, remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. As he continues on quoting the Old Testament to show this has always been the plan, we begin to see a prophecy that was fulfilled in the Old Testament by the captivity and exile of both Israel and Judah. And Paul's asking, even in the Old Testament, if only a remnant of the believing Jews were saved, what assurance are they grasping to regarding are they grasping to regarding present-day Jews? Paul has already shown previously, if we've gone through the the, the book of, of Romans, that being a son of Abraham is not enough. Matter of fact, Abraham had two sons. One of them, the son of the promise, is where the Jews came from, and, and the other one was not. Even though they're, they're, they're the same generation removed from Abraham, they're not part of the promise. And then we also find this prophecy still being fulfilled today because there are still Jews who choose to believe. And even then it was happening. Acts 14.1, it says, Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Acts 17.1-4 says, When they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, and there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, and as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. I'm so excited that even though, as a nation... 
the Jewish people have rejected Jesus Christ, that there are still those who are coming in with arms open wide. They're still recognizing that Jesus is the only way. And, and God hasn't rejected anybody. That's the one thing that we have to understand is God hasn't rejected anybody from salvation. All of us do a pretty fine job of ourselves just walking away. The door has been open. It's true that the, the path is narrow. You guys read that scripture that says that the path is narrow? It's funny, I've always read that one because uh, it, it's, it's the path to enter the kingdom is what it says. And, and, and we all read it to say that the, the path to know God is narrow. We think that once we get on the path, the path stays like this the whole time. And if, if you take a step to the, to the left or the right, you're going to fall off. But it actually doesn't say that the path of walking with God is narrow. It says the path to enter the kingdom of heaven. I think the path to get in is like this. And then it goes wide open on the other side. There is only one way in, but once you're in, anybody is allowed in, and, and we can do it from all walks of life. We just got to continue to, to serve Him and, and operate in faith. But as He continues on, He says that even though the nation as a whole is turning their back to God, a remnant will always be saved. You know, I, I believe that it doesn't even have to be a remnant. If they would all just have their eyes open, I think that's what Paul was praying a, a few chapters ago. He says, if, if I could give up my salvation, then my brethren would just recognize what was going on. I would do it. But the thing about God is that while His choices often seem strange to us, they always serve a divine purpose. You know that God initially rejected the Gentiles in favor of the Jews so that salvation could come to the Jews to ultimately save the Gentiles. You guys should write that down. That's good stuff. He initially rejected the Gentiles in favor of the Jews so that salvation could come to the Jews to ultimately save the Gentiles. It's going to argue as well, like, man, just because they... That some of them rejected Jesus didn't mean that they didn't have a purpose. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love them. It doesn't mean that they're not blessed. And it doesn't mean God still doesn't have a plan for the Jew, for the nation of Israel. God still has a plan for them. They have a purpose. And as Gentiles, we should be so very thankful to them because it's through them that Jesus came. And we're going to finish up today, verses 30 through 33. It says, Shall we say then, the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So previous to now, Paul has been dealing with God's sovereignty. The reality that, that God is sovereign and, and, and if he wants to do something, he can do something. He's God. And if he does something, it has a purpose. But there's also a personal responsibility in responding to the gospel. The Gentiles, not even pursuing God, found him by placing their faith in him. 
And you'll notice as a side note that when Paul's talking about this stuff, it's always about faith. You never, you never see him mention election when he's talking about having faith in Jesus. But it says that the, 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 the Gentiles weren't even looking for God, but they found him by faith. But the Israelites, they pursued righteousness by following the law. And ultimately, they never attained righteousness because they were unable to keep the law. And Paul asks, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but they pursued it if it were based on works. It's interesting that the Jews strove for righteousness, but they never found it. They kept on trying to achieve it by works, by their own hands. And truthfully, it's, it's not just the, the Jewish people today. There are all kinds of people that try to achieve righteousness by their own works, by their own hands. Some of them aren't Christians. Some of them are other religions. That's how the whole religion is based and on somehow you can make yourself right with your God. And unfortunately, there's, there's a lot of, of what would be considered Christian denominations that, that in practice carry in. If you don't show up to church on Sunday, then you're not saved. I'm so glad. But that's not how our salvation is based on whether we show up to church on Sunday or whether we read our Bible every day because I've missed church before. I've not read my Bible before. I've even not prayed as much as I should before. And the truth is, is that I'd like to say this was all well before I was a pastor. But it's not. But I'm so thankful that my salvation, my right standing with God isn't about the things that I do, but instead I trust Him and what He's accomplished inside of me. And the great news is, is that out of love and respect and adoration and all that He's done for me, it makes me want to come to church to spend time with God's people. It makes me want to spend time in His Word. It makes me want to, 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 to sit and talk to Him and pray to Him. Not because I'm trying to earn something, but because He's already given me everything. Why would I not want to spend time with someone who's done that for me? And we see that the stumbling stone for the Jews who was Jesus, and even for many of them today, they don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And he's actually literally a stumbling stone for them. They can't get past that. The stumbling stone for the Jews was actually the salvation for all men. And because they were offended at Jesus, it just made them stumble all the more. They don't believe he is who he says he was, so they can't place their faith inside of him and that's the problem is salvation comes by faith in jesus christ and righteousness is the result of that faith that is in him because we can't work it out on our own i think that what it says we have to work out our own salvation it's not about doing all the things to be saved it's about recognizing that you can't in the first place you need jesus matter of fact that's the whole purpose of the holy spirit is to 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 testify to us need savior We can't work it out on our own. And if we try to, we're just going to stumble just like the Jews did. Their stumbling block was, was, was Jesus, but people on, in the, that live the world today, Gentiles, the, the, the people that aren't uh, part of a religion or other religions, they have, there's all kinds of stumbling blocks. Not least of which is, is putting your faith in your government instead of Jesus Christ. 
or putting your faith in your job instead of Jesus or putting your faith in your 401k instead of Jesus. We have stumbling blocks all over the place. And if we try to work out our salvation or our, our livelihood or our, our, our security on our own, we're always going to come up short. We'll continue to, not unlike the Jewish people did. But I want you to know, church, that if we believe in him, we will never be disappointed because he's faithful. Now, don't get me wrong. You will still go through hard You're still going to deal with hard stuff. The biggest injustices we can do is tell people that if you become a Christian, it's all lollipops and gumdrops after that because it's not. Life is still hard. If they hated him, they'll hate you. You're going to deal with stuff. Sometimes you deal with stuff just because we live in a fallen world. Sometimes you deal with stuff just because you came a Christian. Most people don't persecute people for their Christian faith if they don't have any Christian faith. There are things you're going to struggle with. The enemy out there that doesn't want you to succeed. And as soon as you begin to proclaim your faith in him, stuff will come against you because he doesn't want you to say yes. It's not all easy after you say yes to Jesus. There's still difficult things. But I can promise you two things. is one that you will get through them because he's never going to leave you nor forsake you. And then ultimately, you will never be disappointed. David said, I was young, but now I am old. But I've never seen the righteous forsaken. You'll never be forsaken. You'll make it through. And the truth is, is that the Jewish people are part of God's elect, just like all of us are. We've all been predestined. I've heard somebody say we've all been predesigned to be children of God. The question is, is how will we respond? Will we respond in faith or will we trip over the stumbling stone? Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and bow our heads.